You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, July 2nd, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Randall Snyder. Randall, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here. It's a dream come true. Hey, Randall. How Thanks you guys been? Coming on board. <laughs> we've been good. Pretty That's, good, buddy. Yeah, How we've been good. Man? It's been a while, right? Yeah, it's good to be back. Randall, you and I, we haven't <laughs> talked in, what, three weeks? Like, it's good to have you back on the show, man. You guys are really selling this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this is totally believable. So it's- Randall is a loyal listener of the SGU, and he, we brought him on because we want to talk about his experience in the Mormon church. Now, were you, we're going to talk about that after... Rebecca tells us about this day in skepticism, but just to, to, just to start a little bit, were you in LDS? Is that the version of the church that you were in? Yeah, I only had one wife. Is that what that means? FLDS means fundamentalist, Latter-day Saints, and they are an offshoot of uh, the, the main one in Salt Lake City, and uh, they never accepted polygamy being abandoned back in uh, 1890 and 1905. So they live, they're the ones that live on those uh, secluded uh, communities. Mm-hmm. Big Warren Jeffs all that. was there. Yeah, right. Leader, so they, right? that's the ones where they kick off all the uh, young men, so that the old guys can have the thirteen and fourteen year old girls to marry. Mm-hmm. Not, wow. not what I was associated mm-hmm. with. I was the mainstream one. <laughs> right. Well, Rebecca, tell us first about Louis Pasteur. Well, way to ruin the surprise, Steve. I'm sorry. But yes, on <laughs> July sixth, eighteen eighty five, Louis Pasteur successfully tested the first rabies vaccine. Did it on a little boy who had taunted a rabid dog, was bitten by the dog, and was thereby in danger of dying a truly horrible death. Pasteur had previously worked out that he might be able to prevent rabies from, you know, taking hold using a weakened rabies virus, but that he had uh, weakened in rabbits, but he had tested it only on dogs prior to this. So, At this point, he tested on his first human, Joseph Meester, who lived. So he saved his life. Much like Brad Pitt on World War Z. No, not yet. Not not ready. Not ready yet. It was pretty good, good, Brandon. It was a good attempt. We're not quite there yet. But yes. We call a premature segue. (laughs) Happens to most men at some point. At some point, right? Uh. Meester was nine years old at the time. He definitely, you know, Rabies has like a hundred percent mortality rate, and he lived to be seventy-four. I mean, uh, Pasteur wow. saved his life. He lived to be sixty-four. Oh, you're right, sixty-four. I can add sixty-four. He became the caretaker of the Pasteur Institute, actually, huh. and he served as caretaker until his death. Uh, he died huh. actually quite tragically. He committed suicide on the occasion of the German invasion of Paris. Hmm. Kind of a A sad end, but it was kind of cool that he Hmm. did live, you know, as a young kid, and he went on to care quite a bit about what Pasteur was doing. Pasteur was uber cool. I mean, that guy, you know, his his career was just unbelievably amazing. Look at all the things that he did. He, you know, he sort of broke through with the whole notion of microbes, you know, that, that little germs causing disease. Once you have that insight, you know, he ran with that ball really far. I mean, he, yeah, um, he's one of the first microbiologists. Yeah. Didn't really exist as a discipline before him. Hey, Steve, quick question. When something has a 100% 
you know, fatality rate. So it's okay to do experimental sort of vaccinations and stuff on people, right? Well, it's ethically easier. There's something called compassionate use. There are normal ethical rules for experimentation and for using drugs off-label, for using, you know, uh, experimental treatments are relaxed significantly. If somebody has an unavoidably terminal illness, because it goes, you know, the rationale is what do they got to lose? If they're willing right. to try some desperate experimental treatment, it's reasonable to do that if the only alternative is certain short-term death. All right. So Randall, LDS, tell us about this. Now, first of all, you do credit the SGU with saving you from the Mormon church, right? No, you didn't save me from the Mormon church. Uh, you saved me from the aftermath <laughs> of after uh, leaving the church. Yeah. We eased your oh, transition. Welcome. I'll take you, it. I'll take absolutely. it. Absolutely. You guys were uh, the, You're welcome. Yes. You guys we'll were the it. soft, cushiony pillow that I landed <laughs> on when I, you know, took the quote unquote leap of faith to leave the church because it's a, it's a very all encompassing church to be a member of. It's, it, it consumes every part of your identity. Uh, and there's a lot of social costs to leaving it, uh, which is what makes it difficult for so many people to leave. Even Just after like a cult. It is like a soft cult. Um, there's yeah. cult, it's cult-like, but I, I, I'm not, and the term cult doesn't even, there's no definitive definition that I know of out there for a cult. There's characteristics, kind of like the psychopath test, but. Yeah, exactly. There's no, there's the demarcation mm -hmm. problem, yeah, with a cult in that it, it, there are features and the more of those features you have, the more cult-like you are, but there's no one sharp demarcation line. Right. It'd have to be arbitrarily determined and therefore that's where it's problematic. So, uh, what happened was, uh, I was, you know, I was born in the church. I was, I grew up in Southern California, big Mormon family, one of seven kids. Um, uh, went on a mission. Um, uh, just before I went on my mission, my older brother came out of the closet, so to speak, when he left BYU and went to Vanderbilt to get a PhD in philosophy, which is toxic to religion. And it came out that he was an atheist just before I went on my mission. And that was a really seminal moment in my life, and it was pretty traumatic. So we became estranged for several years because of that. And then when I went through my uh, quote-unquote faith crisis, uh, I did it without any assistance from my brother. He, I just wanted to do this on my own. But once I determined I didn't believe anymore, I finally called my brother up. And he's a very intelligent, very erudite uh, individual. And he could have referred me to a million different things. And the first thing he referred me to was the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Cool. Nice. Wow. And the, wow. the genius awesome. behind it wasn't because he did not want to teach me what he thought I should think. He wanted to teach me how to think. He wanted to reboot my brain That's a good idea. because he knew of where I came from and the epistemology I'd used my entire life. Hey, I like that. We're going to use that as a catchphrase now. Reboot your brain. <laughs> Listen to the SGU. I'm going to pat okay, that. Randall, did your, did your brother like have a strong emotional reaction to this? I smell a T-shirt. When you called him? <laughs> is that what that is? Yeah, we actually uh, talked for about five hours. Because uh, he'd you know, he been estranged from the entire family, and, and no one really knew how to relate to him. And he didn't, no one would talk about things he was interested in. So he just kind of separated himself from the family. And then now, after I left, I understood why. I basically regained a brother, and that brother became my best friend. So, But did you lose the rest of your family? No, it was tough. One of my sisters did tell me uh, when she first found out that it felt like a death in the family. Mm -hmm. When I left the church, that was hard, but uh, they've all since chilled out. My, my mother, who could not be even in the same room as my brother when he left the church without crying, uh, she died of cancer back in 96. So I'm sorry she, she would have taken it the hardest... My sisters took it hard, but they've all been really good uh, after 
fact, and my dad has been awesome all along. Do you think that because of your older brother that it was a little bit easier? Did he blaze the trail for you a little bit? No, actually, he acted as a cautionary tale. He probably prolonged my stay in the church. <laughs> oh, because you saw how hard it was. Well, I just didn't want to become an atheist. I was petrified of becoming an atheist and, uh, and you know, all the things that believers think that when you lose faith in God, then you're just going to want to go out and rape and pillage and, and end up within a ditch with a needle in your arm, you know, because you have no moral compass. And, uh, and, and he, you know, being a cautionary tale, it was like, you know, you have to be careful about Satan. That's one of the things that's the, they inculcate into the membership is that Satan's very cunning and you got to be careful. Is, his arguments are going to sound convincing, but you got to stay within the guidelines of the church to be safe. Uh, so as a cautionary tale, he didn't really blaze the trail. And that's probably why I didn't involve him in my process of uh, deconversion from the Mormon church. Because I didn't become mm -hmm. a skeptic, a secular humanist, and an atheist all at once. It's really started with this show. Yeah, it's a process. Right. Randall, I'm curious to know, do you remember like the early thoughts about questioning your religion? Like, wh how did that happen in your head? I've read too many books on cognition to believe my memory anymore. Um, <laughs> but you have a narrative. What's the narrative? That's my, now the narrative head? that I've confabulated. <laughs> it started with, uh, you know, because one thing that's great about the Mormon church, uh, there's two things that's great about the Mormon church. Number one, it's young, unlike Christianity. It's not hidden by the cloak of time. It's a, it's a fairly new religion. There's a ton of documentation around its origins. The other thing I like is that Joseph Smith had balls and made some really falsifiable claims that science can answer, like uh, claiming that the uh, Native Americans are Semitic in origin. Well, we have DNA now. <laughs> That's, uh, and you guys yeah. actually uh, mentioned that back when Perry was alive. You mispronounced uh, Angel yeah. Morona. You pronounced it Moroni which sounds like an Italian mafia uh -huh. guy, and I remember Perry getting a kick out of that. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> it's Moroni. It's Moroni. Yeah, not Moroni. Moroni. The other time you guys mentioned uh, Mormonism was when you had that guy from, it was a professor from Connecticut, some university in Connecticut that was an uh, archaeologist. Uh, Ken Fader, most likely. He talked about the pre-Clovis uh, sites that had shown mm -hmm. that, that uh, yeah. migration across the Bering Strait was earlier than was originally thought with the Clovis sites. And then you guys asked him, well, what do you think about the claims of some people about uh, the Semitic origins? And his answer was, and I quote, oh, God, no. <laughs> 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 uh, that, that, yeah, that was hilarious. Those are the two times I can remember you mentioning Mormonism because it kind of intersected with science. I went on my mission in Phoenix, and they've got a really impressive Easter pageant. My job was to work the crowd. I was to look for people that didn't look Mormon and go up and talk to them. Uh, they were the people who weren't wearing ties. Mormons uh, value conformity above all else, and so uh, very conservative. They're stuck in the 1950s, uh, culture-wise. Short conservative hair, full uh, shaved, you know, all American. Did you get any converts? On my mission, I had about 40 baptisms. Wow. wow. I, I mean, I want to say well done, but at the same time. At the same time, I want to go back and call those people, but I think most right. of them left anyway. Uh, the church has yeah. a really poor retention rate of their converts. But it's 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 really funny that the, the growth of the church is almost exclusively in third world countries. And so if you go to like South America, you'll come home with like 200 baptisms. If you go to Denmark, like my cousin, he came home with a goose egg. Whoa. <laughs> Sucks to be him, I guess. So Randall, what, what was it? You One day you woke up and you weren't yourself anymore you you were an atheist like what was that day was there was there a moment that you can remember where you made some kind of mental transition or it really was just imperceptibly slow it was pretty slow but there are moments that you remember uh it started in 2006 when i learned about joseph smith 
This is one of the things I wanted to talk about is the church whitewashes its history. So the members are woefully ignorant of their own history because they're only taught the whitewash version on Sunday. And uh, the, the Internet's caused mm-hmm. problems with that. Yeah, but in 2006, I learned that Joseph Smith had married eight women that were already married to other men. And I already knew that he was a secret polygamist. I didn't know that some of them were 14 and that some of them were already married to other living men at the time. And that sent me in, in a very private, secret spiral because I didn't want to deal with the social consequences. I didn't even tell my wife. And I, I let that, I lingered, and I was actually, um, at the time, one of the leaders of the congregation. Uh, not not the bishop, but I was um, the high priest group leader, which is one of the lower leaders of the congregation. And, uh, and I had a practice that had a lot of Mormon dentists referring to me. I didn't want to deal with the cost, so I suffered in silence up until fall of 2008 when Prop 8 came out. And all of a sudden, I was like, this does not resonate with my moral inter- internal moral compass. And that's when I decided to take my faith seriously. And that was a process of about six months of reading insatiably all the stuff I can get my hands on of actual Mormon history and getting angrier and angrier that I didn't know this stuff when I was 34 years old. I let my wife know, and she didn't react very well at first, but she came around after six months. But during that six months, I remember sitting on the patio going, I don't think I believe in God anymore. And we were out by the pool in Phoenix. And she says, it was hard enough that you left the church, but now you're an atheist? Uh, so that was her reaction, but she's since become an atheist as well. So oh, I've wow. been extremely lucky. Yeah, that could have wow. went really bad. It goes really bad all the time. I have many friends who are uh, who's lost uh, their marriage over this issue. It's very yeah, I know it's not as simple as this, but your story makes me think that it was just a necessity of having the information there. You know, your brain was being analytical. You just didn't have the information to, to stitch together the real story. And then once you once that information was in there, your intellect took over and said, look, this is just not, this can't be real. Well, even though uh, I did have the information, it still was a process because it is a constant inculcation and indoctrination from the time, the earliest you can remember. You just constantly mm-hmm. uh, reinforced uh, that this is the one and only true church and that anything outside of it, you'll find misery. And then you know, unconsciously of, of, you know, I could lose my marriage over this. I could lose my kids. I could lose my family. I could, my practice could suffer. And so you kind of drag your feet or sometimes you drag your feet. Yeah. Because you could think, as you say, it's all from the devil, right? So the internet is the yes. devil. And that solves all right. problems. And the church growth has significantly dropped since 1998. Um, Harold Bloom wrote a book called The American Religion back in like 92. And he declared at that time because growth rates in the late 80s and early 90s were uh, looking like that the Mormon church was going to have 100 million members by mid this, you know, the middle of the century and be the first world religion since Islam. Boom, the internet hits. <laughs> and now the church is growing in the United States at a slower rate than the general population is growing. So they're growing relatively, or they're growing absolutely, but relative to the general population, they're contracting, if that makes yeah. sense. Well, Randall, thanks for sharing your story with us. That uh, we, we all find that really fascinating. Um, and, you know, we're obviously happy that we played some role in your transition to a religion-free life. Um, let's move on to some news items. Evan, it's uh, crop circle time of year again. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, a new twist on the whole crop circle story. There is, there is. But but first I have a question for Randall. Yep. Because you were, so, what, a 12th level high priest, did you say? Something like that. <laughs> we're not the Masons. Uh, seventh level spells uh, or something. Although we, <laughs> stole, we stole a ton of shit from the Masons for our temple ceremony. 
like verbatim. Oh, is that right? So your, your oh, question, so cool, I, I was yeah. a high priest. That that just means that I had the highest level of priesthood that you can have. It doesn't mean that I had the highest level of authority. So what is the official position of the Mormon Church concerning crop circles? The Mormon Church does not take positions on anything that they don't have to. So there is no official position by the Mormon Church on crop circles. But if, if you're talking about the alien twist on crop circles, uh, the Mormon God lives plant on a planet near a star named Kolob. So there's a little bit of sci-fi and Mormonism and uh, alien worship. Not exactly Scientology, <laughs> but yeah. So here's how the headline read from the, from the Huffington Post. Crop circles are no hoax, concludes historian after studying Google Earth's new 1945 overlay. Well, uh, this is actually an older news story. I had found an article uh, by the Birmingham Mail in, from the United Kingdom in January of 2013. So the is a few months behind on this one. I'm not sure why they're reporting on it now. Research by archaeologist, seriologist Greg Jeffries of Tasmania. And by the way, a seriologist is a person okay. who devotes a large chunk of their time, right, studying crop circles, and special case cereal. And he has revealed evidence of the strange circles in the English countryside, which were captured in photographs dating as far back as 1945. Jeffries used Google Earth's new 1945 overlay technologies in which you can look at old aerial photos from the past of a given location, and we're kind of assuming that the photos are properly placed into the correct location. I, you know, I'm not really sure how they verify that. They they must have a means of doing that. We'll, we'll take Google at their word for that. But uh, Jeffries spent more than 300 hours scouring the English countryside using the technology, and he found a large number of things that he is describing as crop circles. Well, they are circles in crops. Uh, definitely. <laughs> they definitely are. Well, well there, uh, was, but, there was uh, the issue of the uh, the anomalies in the, in the images themselves that he had to – that he had to weed out. So there's also there's a chance that this could these could just be artifacts of the of the image, the age of the image, or the imaging technique. Yeah, photographs can be altered by the ravages of time and elements, right? Causing images to become compromised. Little marks, dust, watermarks, similar physical subjections must be accounted for. Here's what Jeffrey says, the the history guy. This discovery proves that claims by various artists are are to be the sole creators of crop circles are themselves a hoax. It is just, and it just goes to show that the circles remain unexplained. Name that logical yeah, fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> straw man. Well, it's actually, I would say it's a non sequitur. I don't know that it's really a straw man. There may be a bit of a hasty generalization in there as well, which the, the, uh, seriologists do that a lot, as do a lot of pseudoscientists. Like they take one example and they say, see, this example has this feature, which destroys all of the claims by skeptics that none of them have this feature. When they're looking at, multiple different phenomena. Uh, for example, if we look at these photographs, there's 11 of them on the connected to the article um, that we're looking at here of alleged crop circles from these 1945 overlays. Some of them look like photographic artifacts. Again, they're all – you think there's one triangle. Yeah, the rest are right. all just circles. Or ovals. There's a couple ovals. Which actually is an interesting point because some of them look like the picture itself may not be exactly vertical, but this, but the circle is, and therefore that suggests it's more of a photographic artifact. There's also no no shattering or anything to suggest that it has three dimensionality. Mm-hmm. Other ones, however, you see like a, the rim shadow that matches the shadow of the trees, and those are probably actually physically in the crops. But then he says. Like, for example, there are, 
there's no lines, no tram lines or footprint lines to to show how somebody could have had access to the circle. Mm. It's like, first of all, you don't need to have that. You know, you could, you could walk through the crops without leaving a noticeable trace. A lot, some of them do have access lines. You know, they are across tram lines or whatever. And, and others are probably just photographic artifacts. But you don't see what he didn't find a single picture of is anything that looks anything even remotely like the more contemporary crop circles where there's any complexity to mm-hmm. it. These are just circles and rings or, you know, either photographic artifacts or just simple you know, things. You know, if you piled something up in a field into a rough circle right. and then it left a patch behind, you know, that, that could explain some of these circles. Correct. For example, so not compelling evidence at all. The, the fallacy is in, is in arguing that this means that the modern crop circle phenomenon was not sparked by Doug and Dave who started the modern hoaxing of crop circles. That's the, the logical fallacy that he's committing. This is a non sequitur. It does not follow that argument. Now they think this is a cover up. Like what's, what's the impetus here to hide the, the alien visitation thing? Is this a government deal? No, I, I don't think he was going there, Jay. He's got a quote that kind of rubbed me the wrong way that I think might help answer your question. He said, further, I believe that if the mainstream scientific community were not so timid and so conservative in their view of the universe, mm-hmm. that they would not be sitting on their hands pretending this thing is not happening, but would be seriously investigating this unexplained phenomenon. I mean, come on. The mainstream scientific community, timid and conservative. I mean, this is the, this is the yep. community that brought us uh, quantum entanglement, magnetars, black holes, superposition. If the evidence is there, they will they will go to it. Bob, that that sentence proves that this guy has no clue no. how science works. Yeah, absolutely. Or the people that yeah. are interested in science and, and conducting science. I mean, I would love nothing more than to have some type of proof that these things exist. You know, if aliens, as, as scary as it would be, I would be slightly horrified. I think too. I mean, imagine that. But even still, how provocative could you possibly get? It wouldn't be that scary, Jay. I mean, if they've been making crop circles for half a century, I mean, how you know how belligerent could they be, right? No, Bob. You know, the yeah, scary part would be benign. if they were making crop circles for half a century. What the hell's wrong with them? <laughs> yeah, you know, why don't yeah. you come talk to us, Bob? Crop circles are just instructions for the invasion fleet. Oh, oh must be M Night yes, Shyamalan. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you. How could I miss yeah. that? God, talk yeah. about horrible writing. Maybe we should review that train wreck of a movie. <laughs> some, yeah, we'll get someday. there. Shamalama ding dong. That's one, definitely one of the worst ones. I had consulted some farmers about some possible alternative explanations for what the circles are. Steve, you mentioned the crops and stuff. So they also mentioned, you know, if you put an animal, you tie it to a stake, it's going to walk around in a circle, right? And kind of yeah. wear out that grass. Um, huh. you, know, you stack up some seed or hay or an old silo that they tore down. Uh, the farmers, they mentioned many, many very plausible reasons as to why these circles, if they are even real circles, could happen, yet, you know, this archaeologist failed to acknowledge any of those. So, thanks to Dave Caswell, Rich Lewig, David Arundel, and Nathaniel Stone for uh, for helping me out with some feedback on that. All right. Thanks, Evan. I'm going to go on to another news item. This one is, is really cool. This is a recent study looking at the neurology of morality. To back up a little bit, one of the main sort of skeptical lessons uh, in terms of studying how the brain works is that we all construct our image of reality. Everything that we think we see and remember is a constructed narrative that is highly biased and filtered and flawed. And the same thing is true of our moral feelings. You know, our, there's nothing 
objective about our moral feelings. We evolved to undergo a certain subconscious moral calculus that makes us feel a certain way. Uh, a sense of justice, for example, exists for an evolutionary reason. Another example of this sort of constructed reality is the notion of agency, or you can also call this the theory of mind. So that is the notion that other entities have a mind and that therefore that they have feelings and ideas and thoughts and plans of their own. So the fact that I know that you you are another person with your own thoughts and ideas and feelings is, you know, because there's either part of my brain which creates that sense that you have agency, agency. you have your own mind. Yeah. Hmm. Um, now, our, our brains will, again, undergo a subconscious calculus that, that, and decides what things out there in the environment likely have agency. And it's not based upon a, a scientific or rational understanding of how things actually work. It's just based upon a simple set of rules about how things are behaving. One of the primary rules is that something which is moving in a non-inertial frame is presumed to be an agent, to have agency. If it, if it looks as if it's moving under its own power somehow... Like not a projectile or something. Yeah, it's not just something that's falling or just rolling. It's something that looks like it's moving under its own power, a non-inertial frame then our brain immediately slots that as something that probably has agency. It's something that's acting on its own. We've talked about this sort of thing, you know, before. If you um, hear the bushes rustling, you're likely to assume it's a tiger rather than the wind. Or, mm -hmm. you know, we evolved, you know, from those cavemen who, who jumped to the conclusion that it was probably a tiger because the ones that went to investigate probably got eaten, at least more more often. It's also the reason why those iPads sold so well. Exactly, in exactly. Yeah. You know, stuffed animals, cartoons. We, we in, imbue emotions and agency to these things because it, they're acting as if they're alive. The fact that they are, are two-dimensional or that they can't possibly be alive doesn't affect how we feel about it. It may affect how we think about it, but we feel about it as if it has agency. There was There's a cool experiment. I don't know if we've talked about this on the show before, where psychologists took a – they have like a little – it's two-dimensional animation. It's like a little room, and there's a, a big triangle, a little triangle, and a square, a big square. And they're moving around on the two-dimensional screen. And they're moving in a non-initial frame. They're moving as if they have agency. And, you know, subjects were asked to construct a story about what they're doing. And if you watch it, you guys got to watch this video. We'll link to it in the show notes. You, like, you construct this whole narrative around these two-dimensional regular shapes. It's like, oh, yeah, the big square is the daddy, and he's being really mean. He's abusing the mommy, and then the little triangle is the baby, and he's running away and hiding. You know, it's like you have no problem constructing an elaborate emotional narrative around shapes just by the moving simply on the screen. In this new study, what they did was they looked at the relationship between how our brain assigns agency to things and how we feel about them morally. Uh, and what, what they found, they did two basic experiments. They had, they exposed people to Things that traditionally we do not assign agency to. One was a corpse and another was a, like a robot. Zombie! Was like a robot. <laughs> something, but something that was not animate, right? So it wasn't animate or moving in a way that you would think 
to to imbue the sense of agency. And then the object was the target of abuse. What happened was that that seeing like a, uh, the, the object that was inanimate, the focus of moral abuse caused people to to imbue it with a certain amount of agency. You need to think to to think about it as if it had feelings or a mind. Steve, do, does it does it have to be something that ha- has to meet a certain threshold of being close to having agency? Like a robot looks like a human, a corpse was a human. Yeah, I, I like if, if you're abusing a rock, you're not going to endow it with agency and feel empathy towards the rock. Yeah, that's a good question. They didn't do enough follow-up experiments to, f- to find out where that line was. Because I wonder if, like a tree, like I, a lot of people. Yeah. You know, if you start beating up a tree, they might endow it with uh, uh, agency. This actually occurred yeah. Yeah, on true. the most recent episode of the comedy Bang Bang TV show. If anybody's watching that, they just had the first episode of season two, and there's an entire joke around a tiny ladder that Scott Aukerman needs to throw into a furnace, and he can't do it because it's adorable and it's like cooing at him. And they continues through the entire <laughs> show, and you actually like I. I mean, maybe I just I can identify very easily with inanimate objects. I don't know, but I was definitely feeling very sorry for the poor little ladder. Uh, yeah. It was it was the subject of both physical and psychological torment, and both were equally painful to watch. And it was literally it was a step ladder. So it was a pretty funny example of what you guys are talking about. Yeah. So the the researchers concluded that because you can only behave immorally towards something that has a mind, that if somebody is behaving immorally towards something, that therefore it must have a mind, right? So we we assign agency agency to something because it is the target of an immoral act or immoral behavior. The other end of the spectrum, they looked at, you know, so exposed subjects to, to, uh, images of people, you know, so people who, who obviously we assign agency to, who are also being victimized, who are being the target of abuse. And what happens is people tend to assign them less agency or less mind, which is interesting because, and the, the hypothesis there was that, uh, perhaps it causes mental anguish to see somebody that we know is a fully feeling human be who is suffering under abuse and therefore we downgrade their humanity we dehumanize them in order to relieve our anguish or our cognitive wow. dissonance over over the pain so and, and we know this from other experiments right that you know you that you can we tend to dehumanize outgroups for example and so are the threshold for causing them harm goes down. You know, we have the ability to kill other people. Even, you know, a non-psychopathic, you know, average person can bring themselves to kill somebody else under the right circumstances. What are those circumstances? One in which the other person is dehumanized. And the, and the, one of the biggest right. ways in which we do that is to view them as a member of an outgroup. Actually, there was another really interesting study that just came out that was about that very thing. So there was a group of, uh, psychologists that did a study where they gathered a group of white people and had them watch video clips of a needle touching someone's skin. And they showed images of the needle touching white skin and touching black skin. And they measured uh, their reactions using skin conductance and whatever. Um, and what they found was that 
viewers uh, who saw white people receiving a painful stimulus responded a lot more dramatically than when they saw black people receiving the same stimulus. Um, and mm-hmm. the thinking is exactly what you just said. Yeah. They're othering black people. And it's so, they, you know, it's, it's not an outward uh, racist reaction. It's, it's something that's been completely and utterly internalized uh, that they've, you know, othered this, this entire group of people. One tragic area in society where this uh, manifests itself in, in America is the war on drugs. And there was a recent book that came out to show that showed that uh, black individuals that are almost always placed in front of a white judge uh, suffer. I can't remember the number, but it was almost like 20 to 30 times more severe punishments than white people with the exact same drug offense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one other thing, one other uh, wrinkle about this, this does also foreshadow the upcoming segment. We're going to review the movie World War Z, which is about zombies, of course. But there's, you guys ever hear like this uh, unwritten rule about science fiction that the good guys or the heroes essentially have unlimited ability or they, or with abandon, they can kill an unlimited number of certain kinds of things without there being any moral judgment Uh, against them. I read that unwritten rule, yeah. Yeah, it's robots, insects, undead, monsters, and Nazis. <laughs> yeah, that, Nazis, Nazis yeah, you definitely. <laughs> they, yeah, you, they are you the kill all-time as many, villain. Yep. Yeah, robots as you want, but not people, you know, right? So, but What about Nazi uh, zombies? Well, there was actually a movie where awesome there were Nazi movie. zombies. That was Sucker Punch. Sucker Wait, Punch, yeah, what? it was awesome. No, not Sucker and Punch. I, Cyborg Nazi. Red, Nazi well, Red yeah, Snow. Sucker Punch had... Uh, well, Red Snow, yeah. Uh, Sucker, 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 Sucker Punch, Punch also had yeah. zombie Get that shit Nazis. out of here, Sucker Punch. Go watch Red Snow. It it's good. one of the greatest zombie movies ever. But I think that Nazis... Is yeah. it really? I've got to see Nazis, that. Nazis uh, is a stand-in for a generic enemy soldier. I think we tend to portray enemy soldiers as a uniform, as, you know, as, as literally as uniform. So think about stormtroopers from Star Wars. They weren't people. Right. They were just, they were just the outfits. Right. I wasn't you know? even yep. sure the first time I watched Star Wars that those were people. I thought they exactly. were like, exactly. <laughs> They certainly weren't. I, I mean, I was like seven at the time, but yeah, they're, they're, they're right. They're not individuals. They're they're drones. They're just enemy soldier drones. So I think that's that's again so that we can enjoy the hero killing uh, hundreds or thousands of these things without the moral pain of thinking that they're they're killing things with who uh, have agency. Right. A, a, a father, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Oh my gosh, you know, you just killed someone who had ten children. Which is why you know, like more contemporary movies where the enemies are humanized can be so poignant. It's so different mm-hmm. than the more jingoistic, you know, classic movies where the enemies are always and anonymous. It's, it's also why things. movies like uh District Nine are so powerful because they take that traditionally othered species that looks like a giant bug that you could just squish and turns it into something yep. yeah. that has emotions and feelings. Exactly. Prawns, or yeah. think about classic Indian cowboy and Indian movies where the Indians are essentially uh, uh, dehumanized yeah. and anonymized as well. Mm-hmm. Just enemy drones to be mowed down. Interesting. So yeah, they, you know, I find this this kind of research fascinating. You know, looking at how our brains construct how we think about things, and morality is just one of those things that our brains absolutely construct based upon evolved rules. And then we get people get very self righteous about it. You know, about about what their evolved moral sense. Now I know all you guys saw World War Z. Yep. No. Yeah, you owe me ten dollars. <laughs> Fourteen for me. I saw it in three D. I fell asleep three times. I did take my five and seven year old, and the five year old had a blanket to cover his head, 
and he only covered his head a couple of times, and then he stood up after okay. it was over and said, that wasn't that scary. I'm, <laughs> wow, I'm judging kid. you as a parent right now. That, <laughs> that, movie is not, that, that movie is not for five- and seven-year-olds. That said, I didn't. I did not hate World War Z. I didn't. I, I liked it, okay. it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good movie. Good. I found good it unsatisfying. Movie. There were certain parts of it that were satisfying. So I'll tell you what I liked about it. I, I actually liked the fast zombies just because it was different. They were freaking scary. You know, they're running through the streets of of uh, Philadelphia in a total mm-hmm. panic. By the way, there are going to be spoilers. Uh, if you don't want to hear spoilers, skip ahead. People were just running in a panic. They weren't even sure what they were running from. And the zombies were just leaping on people just to bite them. I mean, they were fast, motivated, and psychotic. I mean, they would do whatever it took to, to get their teeth into you. And the virus spread in 12, literally 12 seconds. So yeah. it really, the infection just was a wave moving across the city. A it wave. was one of those horror movies where you're thinking, if I were in that situation right now, I probably wouldn't survive. I don't yeah, I would die. I would have yeah. been dead. We I all would have been dead had, unless, unless we were married to Brad Pitt. Or I had one of those progeny. moments where I'm in the theater and I'm like, all right, if that shit started like in the upper right-hand corner... Like, where are my exit points? Like, where am I going? Like, I, you, you do a spot check real quick. I like the movie, too. I did like it. I felt like they were building to an ending that never came, though. Yeah, I got that well, feeling that, as well. Don't you um, think they left it open gonna, on purpose? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask. Are they going to be doing more? Because, I don't know, that's, I walked away assuming that that was what was happening there. Well, yeah, I think, I think they definitely left it open on purpose. A couple things I couldn't get past. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. Some of the major set pieces were really, really effective. Uh, the Philadelphia takeover that Steve was talking about was really good. The takeover of uh, of, of of Israel, uh, breaching the wall in Israel, really, yeah. Yeah, the fall that, of that Jerusalem was, that, was a whole. That, great, that was a great, great scene. scene. Yeah. The, the, the plane sequence was really cool. But a couple things I couldn't get past is first off, I mean, I I know the book. I've listened to it on audio many times. Just absolutely love it, and I just couldn't help. I couldn't get past the point. I couldn't get past the fact that they destroyed that that book. I mean, it's not the book. It's not even – you can't even – you could almost barely say it was inspired because there's really no connection between the book and the movie. The other thing was that a, a big zombie movie like that really needs to be R. PG-13, give me, yeah. a, mm-hmm. give me a break. You, we need mm-hmm. gore. It should be zombies eviscerating people and they didn't even eat people. They just pretty they much just wanted went, to bite yeah. them. Right. Well, now like, we have to on. define like what's a zombie, and this is this is an interesting topic because I actually get into damn near fist fights with people over this. I have a traditional sense of a shambling, slow moving zombie where the real danger is when there's too many of them. Um, as an example, the Walking Dead TV show illustrates that very well. Like the thing that you really only should be afraid of is when there's a, a huge number of them. Any single person should be able to take out one or two zombies. So now we're in like Olympic athlete zombie level. Beyond here. Olympic, like, they were jumping ten feet in the air and grabbing onto helicopters. Oh yeah, yeah. They had yeah. So the, superhumans. I, I'm just wondering how a, a pathogen can make the ligaments and the muscles, uh, uh, you know, pretty much supernatural. They they could jump higher than any NBA player. They could run as fast as an Olympic sprinter. 
that that was a point that was addressed in the book. I agree with Bob. This movie was not the book. I kind of knew that going in, right, Bob? Didn't we know that? And we knew it. It's still it's it doesn't still bother. Me you got to get over that. Movies are movies. Books are books. Yeah. It's, a, it's a different medium. You can't judge a movie by how closely I, it's, it uh, skews to the book. Just take, look at it unto itself. Same thing with the fast versus slow zombies, Jay. This was a movie about fast zombies. Who cares that they weren't slow zombies? That's a different. It's almost a different genre. So. Uh, what Max Brooks writes, which I think is reasonable, is that it's not that they have preternatural strength. Uh, it's just that they don't feel pain. They don't care. So they will give 100% of their mechanical effort without any inhibit, anything to inhibit them. And like that mechanics. actually makes sense. Yeah. That not makes caring sense. can't make you jump 10 feet though. Well, I don't, I don't remember seeing in the movie any person jumping farther than you could mechanically jump with muscles and bones and ligaments. There was a scene I, I, on when they, when he first escaped on the first helicopter, uh, a zombie on the roof jumped. It may not have been 10 feet, but it was like seven or eight feet in the air. I mean, they would have been dunking yeah. with their nuts. Also, I mean, Steve, the wall climbing liberty. feet in Jerusalem, I mean, you know, that does, that would never take place with normal people. Well, no, that, well, but that one not. I think is something that is, explained by the whole you know shutting down your pain sensors like yeah you can build a human period pyramid out of bodies and that's basically what was happening there i don't think there's no that was way too tall though rebecca it was like you know there was a 50 foot wall uh, yeah, so? yeah it, was a, it was a pile they of just people. had a lot of bodies yeah <laughs> they had just, a lot of that, people that's that's part of the terrifying aspect of this right okay so there's a million of these things outside the wall they can do things like this what about adrenaline? What about adrenaline, Steve? Could that could that explain it if they were just totally pumped with adrenaline? I mean, you could do amazing things under under the influence of adrenaline. Yeah, so let's uh, assume that... let's assume that whatever the virus was doing to the body, it would it was functioning at maximum biological capacity, physical capacity, without any and and you know, and even like Max Brooks wrote in the book, like they they will use muscles even they will do things, they will do feats of strength that will rip the muscles apart and they don't care. And as luck should have it, all of the zombies were very fit. I don't yeah. know if you guys noticed, but yeah, there was not a single zombies. fat zombie. <laughs> very, very not a slender, single yeah, one. Right? Yeah, good point. I assume yeah, that they were point. left for food somewhere. But right, right. Yeah. Uh, my, my main problem with the science of it is at one point they say that airplanes were the most important vector sort of to, to trans you know, transmitting this disease or whatever it is, uh, from country to country. But the longest we've heard of it, of the disease taking hold in someone is 10 minutes. Like mm -hmm. in Korea, they say, yeah, it took this guy 10 minutes to turn. That's the longest. So that, that makes no sense. Nobody was getting bitten 10 minutes before they got on an airplane and then got on the airplane right. and then turned into a zombie, destroyed everyone or like dead everyone. customs, right, in the other <laughs> right. end of the leg. Like that yeah, the virus happen. makes a plane crash because they'll, they'll eat Basically. the pilots. Right, yeah. So yeah. like that that did not make sense to me. And You're right, that's a plot hole. They, I don't yeah. think they were thinking about that. Normally, uh, what about a boat? Normally, planes would be the most important vector, like for spreading the flu or something like that. Right. But with a twelve-second incubation period, which is Not implausible. Yeah. I mean, we we'll talk about even, implausible. That's implausible. Even the ten minutes, right. you know, we'll <laughs> even grant the ten them minutes at the right. early. That yeah. and, and that t 
And that actually has an interesting uh, tie-in with, uh, you know, with viruses and infections themselves because they're always a balance. Because when you get an infection like that, you don't want to be too powerful because if you're, if you're too all-encompassing and if you just take out your host, then you're not going to spread right. and you're going to burn out. So this is what would have happened. This would have burned out in a very isolated way. It's, it's, the, it's the diseases that can linger for a little while and let you transfer it and transmit it to other people. Those are the ones uh, that could really be nasty because they could spread really far and you won't even know you have it. So, Like Planet of the Apes, balance. for instance. Planet of the Apes, uh, uh, spoiler right. alert for Planet of the Apes, the most recent film. At the end of that, uh, that's how this virus spreads that is, you know, assumed to be the thing that takes out all of humanity. But that's because, you know, the guy sneezes a bit weird and doesn't think much of it and gets on a plane. Like mm-hmm. that, so it, it takes You're long right. enough. It's mild enough symptoms. You're right. And in, in in the the Max Brooks book version, the incubation period was a day or a couple of days. Ah, oh. a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was yes. that was actually a scary part of that spread because you would have these safe havens, but there was somebody in there who was breeding the virus, and they were going to turn overnight when nobody was paying attention, or like on a plane. You know that could happen. But yeah. they, I, I understand. Why they did the twelve second thing? Because then you get that wave of zombification, you know, flowing over a city, and that's cool. But I think they needed to explain um, what, how it could spread otherwise. I, it would imagine how scary it would have been if, right. like, eight out of ten people turned in twelve seconds, but one or two people took a few hours yes. or a day to turn yes. for whatever reason, and those are the people who are really spreading it, and those are the or, typhoid Marys. And they, I actually or, thought that that's where it was going, but it never got there. Like, yeah. when they were in Korea, and they were like, oh yeah, it took that guy ten minutes to turn, that, my first thought was like, oh, okay, so some people react differently to this, and they're going to explore that and then, no, of course not, because the oh. doctor shot himself in the head, yeah. which was hilarious, by the, the way. Oh, my I God. Loved that. <laughs> I loved it. Joke. Did you guys like, uh, you know, that the world's leading neurologist that they had that ended up shooting himself in the head? Did you like his anthropomorphizing of uh, Mother Nature as a bitch, psychopathic serial killer? Yeah. That was... Uh, and, you know, it, it, it was funny, and it's the kind of thing that nerdy scientists do. Yeah, especially you know? like a... Two young nerdy scientists thrown into yeah. a situation like this. It, I think it made sense for his character. Trying to be poetic, yeah, it made sense. I, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I was certainly. But sub- I knew once he said that he was going to be dead within the next. 10 yeah, minutes. I know that was definitely. <laughs> as soon as he said that, it's like I see the red shirt forming on him. It's a very <laughs> Jurassic Park it's, sort of thing to say. I am. Right um, exactly. you, you know, I was thinking about his tone and his comments, and I don't mind. The scientist guy in the movie, like, you know, he was one of the people that represented science. Don't mind him being passionate and poetic about things, but I always think in the back of my head, is that what people think? You know, is that what people think scientists are saying and doing or what the, you know, the, the, or is that becoming like a cliche thing about how to handle a scientist? You know, like Jurassic Park, example, perfect example, Rebecca. The rock star scientist. I don't think it was a negative portrayal of, a scientist, you know, and the guys, the CDC, not C- the WHO guys at the end were, I think, like perfect scientists because yeah. they were all like right. really nerdy and <laughs> they didn't really do much <laughs> physically speaking, you know, but they solved problems. And I liked, I liked the end idea, even though it made no sense to me. So that was the other sciencey thing yeah. that I had a problem yeah, yeah. with, which is, okay. So again, spoiler, um, the, the way that they, they're going to combat the zombies is to 
uh, disappear and they can develop this. Well, Brad Pitt discovers that, uh, zombies, yeah, don't attack people who are, uh, going to die anyway. Terminally ill. I thought that was a stretch. And so, yeah, so, so he's like, if I just jab myself with a terminal illness that we can cure, then everything will be fine. So he does that and it works. And then, they cure him. They don't say what the disease is. Yeah, Rebecca, um, they don't make that clear. And I'm sorry, no. but at that point in the movie, it seemed a little rushed. And I also felt like Brad Pitt's character got to that conclusion without earning it in the movie. It just seemed a little bit like maybe things were edited out. Yeah, Brad Pitt walks through the zombies with his unnamed terminal illness. And then he gets back to the researchers who cure him. Uh, and then he and badass Israeli soldier lady, uh, walk out of the WHO building very calmly as though they have nothing to fear. But Brad Pitt has been cured of the terminal illness. So wouldn't that make him visible again to the zombies? And wouldn't they be worried? Adam, my boyfriend was arguing that there was a time jump and that the military had already cleared out all the zombies in that area. And that's why they left the building confidently. Well, okay. And I, I, but you could, I, I, I didn't pick up part. on any. You could, you could write anything you want in your head and to explain it away, but they, all it takes is a literally a line in a movie. This specific thing is important though, because does it mean that you, that the zombies won't attack you if you had a terminal illness that has now been cured? Or do you actually have to have the terminal illness at the time? Right. I because, agree. And then they create, so they create a vaccine. This is all done in very quickly in news report style. They create a vaccine. What would that vaccine look like? It doesn't yeah. make sense. If the zombies are only going after somebody who is carrying a terminal illness and you know the the best explanation i could could come up with is like oh well we'll introduce a weakened version of a terminal illness and the zombies will sense that if that's the case no zombie would have attacked anyone who had had a polio vaccine yeah right right yeah they didn't really explore that well enough to make it make sense even if so even the the premise is a little bit of a stretch because like you see and part of the evidence that gets Brad Pitt to this conclusion is watching like a river of zombies, as he put it, flowing over this one person who was sick. It's like they, so they have, they're that attuned that they, they, it's like the person's invisible to the zombies that they can sense as they're running past somebody that they have a terminal illness. Yeah. Even, even more than that, Steve. I mean, look, I mean, this is, these are, People that are in, engulfed in this, this, uh, viral rage, they are pretty much dead, although they didn't really need to be dead, you know, which to me is a hallmark of a zombie. If you're not dead, you know, you're not really a zombie. And, and they didn't even need to be dead. But how, but how, mm. I mean, how could they possibly sense in a fraction of a second, oh, you're terminal, oh, you're terminal, and, and avoid yeah. them? They would just, they would just sweep over everybody and anybody in, in their rage, and they wouldn't have time. To determine yeah. uh, if somebody's terminal, that's ridiculous. But yeah, it's an interesting just, idea. It, it didn't seem consistent really with their behavior because they didn't really stalk their prey or anything. There was right. just a mad dash and a literally a leap at the, the closest victim and a bite. So oh, yeah, man. it didn't really seem to fit with their and behavior. Even as, right. even as a river of zombies would, uh, you know, fly across uh, 
someone who they didn't want to kill, would they be so courteous as to scoot around them every time when they just blow yeah. them over? <laughs> I thought of that. Well, there, there were a couple shoulder bumps. <laughs> yeah. them like, over at least. Point. Yeah, and it, it also, I, mean, I don't know if they're going to have a follow-up movie and how they're going to play it, but it would have made sense. Is like you have to be febrile. You have to have an acute illness and be shedding virus, you know, in order for the zombies to ignore you, which kind of makes it challenging to keep somebody in that state. Right. You know, and so it's not like you get a vaccine now you're invisible to zombies forever that doesn't that doesn't make any sense so it'd be it'd be yeah. you know a little bit more challenging it would be it'd be a tool that could be used in the follow up winning the war against the zombies but but not just a you know you're vaccinated and you're invisible i do like brad pitt a lot i've always enjoyed him there's he's very charismatic and there's something charming and funny about him and i thought for the most part he this role was okay, but Brad Pitt comes across pretty flat. He's always like the too cool. He's always too cool and too good looking for his own good, right? He doesn't really yeah. act as much as he's just a movie star. You know, it would it would have been powerful if he lost his shit in one scene. Exactly. Why yeah. didn't the director right. Right. talk to You're Brad right. Pitt and say, "I need you to completely lose it and and either cry about your family, show fear about the zombies, like you know, be afraid." But Brad Pitt kept his cool. Too. He was Batman. Right. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And, and I, the world is ending. Hello, millions of people are dying. There's got to have some emotional toll, and he showed none of that. And ultimately, at the end, and this is the that the, the last gesture of the movie. You know, it was like watching a, an ice skater jump up in the air, and they never they never land. You know, it just all of a sudden just kind of goes off in outer space. Like I needed the landing. I needed to see them come back, and I needed to see humanity like fight a real battle with the zombies and get the leg up on them. And what they did, like Rebecca oh. described it as like the news. They glossed the montage, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they did like a quickie montage, you know, blah, 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 did this, and then blah, 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 and this. It's like, and no, that, no, no, no. That was no, the best drag- part of the book. The best part of the, the book version of this, of World War Z, was that the, the uh, Battle of Yonkers at the beginning, when the zombies pouring out of New York City decimate the army, they destroy the army because the army had no idea what they were doing. And then at the end of the book, you have another massive confrontation between the army and a a very large zombie army but this time the army is well equipped and they know what they're doing and it's a completely different situation and you see the full arc the full learning curve of how to fight zombies and and we Mm. yeah they they sort of gave you that quickie at the end and they didn't really i I agree they kind of leave you like oh this is the stuff i've been waiting for show me more of this but uh i i also was left with the impression like that was a teaser for the next movie but we'll see well wait wait so so screw that because you can't you can't wreck movie one because of the maybe movie two might be coming yeah i agree so science wise how many prometheuses do we give this what's our scale Uh, i don't remember what the scale is scale is one to five one to five 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 being being worse five being prometheus prometheus the movie i would give it two yeah what um two that's so we, we gave we gave two to oblivion we actually, this is just based on the science, though, right? Yeah, Not just based like, on the science. Yeah. We forgot to to rate Star Trek Into Darkness. I I think I would give that a three. Yeah. If yeah. I would give it a Oblivion's three. a two, Star yeah. Trek's a three, Prometheus is a five. I would give this a two. Yeah, I'd I give two. it a three. Yeah. No, I give it a three. Yeah. Randall, two and a half. It doesn't really matter because uh, <laughs> I, uh, I haven't rated the previous ones. Uh, so there's no calibration. Uh, yeah, no so calibration. So my arbitrary uh, number is oh. two point five. I did want to say yeah. something about the Jews. This is for Evan. <laughs> yep. They 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 do the, they spend a lot of time developing the story of of uh, the the Jews 
and Israel, you know, they didn't think they'd go to the concentration camps in the 30s. Oh, Six yeah. Six million died. They didn't think the Arabs would attack them in 73, and they almost drove them into the sea. And finally, the Jews are vigilant enough to avoid the outside <laughs> world from obliterating them, and they build their walls, and they win, and they still suffer genocide by zombie. That's they right. Don't so give them a break. So what's <laughs> the Jews never because, win? That's the... Because they, they weren't watching their walls. Yeah, I mean, they built all those it walls was and they didn't have eyes they, on didn't the they, wall. They had hel- helicopters all over the place. What, they missed that? I mean, I don't. It was yeah. a bit contrived. It was a bit contrived. By the way, uh, I would have probably given this a three and a half. Uh, I'll give it a wow. three because because the moon stayed together the, in one piece. The moon was true. in one piece. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't yeah. break up. They had one pandemic cliche of the, of the scientist infecting himself in the lab handling a very dangerous pathogen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, we didn't mention that. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, this in- infectious disease doctor handling an unknown pathogen accidentally cuts himself. Or a blood into breaks and blood <laughs> sprays yeah. everywhere. <laughs> so, Evan, you're going to do one more Who's That Noisy, and then on next week's show, you're going to get us all cut up. Absolutely. I promise that I will do that. But here's the brand new, fresh off the presses, Who's That Noisy. I enjoy this one a lot. I found this one myself, and I'm very happy that I did. Happy. So, I you'll enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy happy. it, too. Here we go. Happy. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and uranium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, and americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, ruthenium, vanadium, and anthium, and arsenium, and acetine, and radium, and golden protactinium, and dinium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Awesome. That's Dr. Ataz. Good, good reference. Yeah, so, you know. That one's uh, all voice. You've got to recognize the voice on that one. It's the only way to get it. The email to send your answers to is WTN at theskepticsguide.org and our forums are suforums.com.com or .org. All right. Thanks, Evan. One quick follow-up to last week, and then we're going to go on to science or fiction. Jay, you were talking about the podcast patent and reading about it further, and there was a lot of people pointed us to the Planet Money segment covering the podcasting patent troll. So I just wanted to clarify a couple of things. This The patent is actually one that was filed for in 2009 and issued in 2012, and that, that patent itself does essentially describe modern podcasting. Uh, but of course, this was years after podcasting was well-established. Now, but the, uh, the patent troll is using as his precedent the fact that in 1996, he, uh, developed this service in which he, uh, if you liked a, a certain magazine, for example, then you can subscribe to that magazine and then they, you would be mailed cassette tapes with somebody reading the articles from the magazine. And he's saying that was the the germ of an idea for podcasting. Podcasting came out of mailing cassettes of people reading magazine articles. Sounds Makes like sense. It. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Totally okay. ridiculous. Let's Absol- just yeah. cut him a check right now. Yeah. Yeah, we owe we owe this guy money for podcasting. So there's no real threat is what I guess is what we're saying. I don't think this so. Is gonna I really I really don't okay. think there is. After reading that I'm like, wow, that really mailing cassettes, that's the that's the basis. But it also shows what a total jackass this guy is to try to, you know, rape money from people who are doing real work because of that precedent. Ridiculous. Of course. Anyway. Well, it's all about money, Steve. Yeah, of course. All right. Let's move on to science fiction. Yeah. It's time for science or fiction. Fiction. 
Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week and four items. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The theme is cheetahs. Oh. Okay. Here we go. Cheetahs never win. I like cheetahs. Uh, Item number one. The cheetah genus Asinonyx is the oldest of the extant big cats, dating back about 11 million years. Item number two, cheetahs make several vocalizations, including a warning roar that is often mistaken for that of a lion, which they use to scare larger predators from their kills. Item number three, a recent study using GPS-enabled tracking collars clocked cheetah hunting speeds at up to 58 miles per hour, or 93 kilometers per hour. And item number four, the name cheetah comes from an Indian word meaning spotted one. Randall, as our guest this week, you get to go first. Well, how the hell can I GWB? You'll have to GWR. I know GWR is a better bet this year, apparently. Yeah. Um, Actually, somebody just sent Jay. us. Jay uh, and Rebecca yeah. are tied. The half-year stats, yeah. What, I think what hell her just name? Froze, froze over. I, I, Bob, <laughs> I think she confuses me and you. <laughs> no, I'm it's doing really crappy the only year, explanation, Jay. isn't it? Uh, what's your name? Oh, Laura Polterak sent us in science or fiction statistics, and according to her stats for this year, since January first, Jay is tied with me for the lead at sixty-seven percent, followed by Bob at fifty-five, Steve at fifty, and Evan at forty-eight. And the dice got fifty percent. Oh, the dice got fifty percent. So, Steve, you're dice. even with the dice. Yeah, Evan. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Still beating chance. I really don't even know what to say. Like, I, I do. I get like a, an award. Don't say. Or what, like, what's happening next? You get, you get nothing the, yeah. but pride. You get, but you get two things. What happens next is Randall tells me his guess for this one. All right. Well, without the benefit of GWR, GWB, I'll do my best. I do like watching big cats on Animal Planet. The one about uh, cheetahs being the oldest extant big cat. I guess that makes sense. Uh, lion prides. They require a lot of food and. Uh, Cheetahs are kind of solitary, uh, so I can see them lasting longer. Cheetahs making several vocalizations, including a warning roar. And I've watched a lot of uh, Animal Planet and uh, Discovery and uh, Nat Nat Geo. I have never seen them roar. Uh, It's more like a chirp, from what I remember. So I'm a little suspicious of that one. A recent study using GPS shows that they run up to 58 miles an hour. That's about what I thought they ran. And the name cheetah comes from an Indian word meaning spotted one. I mean, cheetahs are from Africa. Uh, what are Indians doing? Are you talking about Native American or India Indian? Yeah, India Indian, not American Indian. India Indian. Okay, well, that makes more sense than Native Americans naming an African big cat. I'm going to have to go with cheetahs, the, the vocalization one being the fiction. Okay, Bob. The 11 million years, uh, that seems like a long time, but, but probably not for a genus. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, the, yeah, that's plausible, I guess. The um, the tracking collars. Um, yeah, when I first saw 58, I mean, I've always thought that it, was in, it was in the 60s. But, uh, I mean, you wouldn't make this fiction just for a few miles an hour. Um, so, that's yeah, that's, that's, you know, close enough, I guess. Um, and the cheetah one with the, uh, the Indi- Indian word. I yeah I guess that's possible as well. Uh, they don't have to be endemic to the continent to uh, to name something, uh, so that's fine. But yeah, the uh, the vocalizations I can't ever remember hearing 
a cheetah making um, much of a noise, especially one that would sound like a lion. It, it seems to me that they wouldn't even have the anatomy to pull off something like that. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the vocalizations as well. Okay, Rebecca. It just so happens that cheetahs are my favorite were my favorite animal when I was like ten. So I know quite a bit about cheetahs. I did not know that their genus is the oldest. Um, so I'm not sure about that one. Uh, I do think the Indian word meaning spotted one makes sense because Bob and Randall, I'll have you know that according to the encyclopedia I had when I was 10, cheetahs, uh, do, or at least did exist, uh, in India. They spread from like well into well into the Middle East and and Asia, so that makes sense. Um, their hunting speed of fifty eight miles per hour is only surprising in that I was always under the impression that it was seventy miles an hour uh, at a top speed, but of course that's well inclusive of fifty eight, so that's believable. Which leaves us with the warning roar thing. Uh, I could be wrong about this and, you know, I haven't, I haven't kept up to date on my cheetah facts. I no longer subscribe to Ranger Rick. Um, <laughs> so this could have changed, but I was under the impression that cheetahs are one of the only, if not the only large cats who cannot roar. They can purr and make other interesting vocalizations, but I don't think that they can roar. So I'm going to GWR on this Woo-hoo. and say that the roar thing is fiction. All right, Jay. Everybody covered it. I think it's crystal clear that the the word cheetah, the name cheetah comes from the Indian word meaning spotted one it is the false, the fake. <laughs> okay. Okay. And Evan. Holy shit. Didn't see I, that coming. I, I think I have a distinct advantage on this one because uh, thanks to my daughter, I've seen all three Cheetah Girl movies. <laughs> cheetah Girl? <laughs> cheetah Girl? Cheetah Girl. What is that? The Cheetah Girl. That, that's where that Simon up. Ramon girl, right? Cheetah Girl. Oh, yeah, wait. that's oh right. Oh, my God. Did yeah. I know that, Ra- Steve? Raven, Edit that out. Raven I, is one of them. Yeah. Edit that out, Steve. Bob, I, I caught you. Totally snagged you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll um, I'm watch that. Well, no I cheetahs. will uh, just get right to it like Jay did, except I'm not going to say the spotted one. I think it's the vocalization ones as well, but that one's going to be the fiction. Uh, you're going to leave Jay hanging by himself, huh? Sorry. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go through these. We'll start with number one. The cheetah genus, Asinonyx, is the oldest of the extant big cats dating back about 11 million years. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Ooh. Yay. 11 million. 11 million years, yeah. So it actually it took me a while to try to figure out like how far back they dated. There, I found lots of references. Definitely they are the oldest uh, extant genus of big cats. That is uh, crystal clear. But mm. different references oh. gave different dates for how far back the genus goes. And they, they, they branch off pretty far back in, in, from the other cats. So that, that, you know, in terms of the oldest common ancestor with the other big cats through the they sort of branch off first yeah there's there were there were lots of different species uh and they ranged all over the place north america asia europe uh africa there was uh, a giant cheetah that that weighed that's like twice as Ooh. big as the as the modern cheetah it weighed like 200 no. pounds cool really big yeah really big boy. Run. yeah 
Well, I mean, the, the, probably the, the fastest cheetah is probably the current one. Uh, it's really, uh, fine tuned for speed. Yeah, the arms race with its yeah, prey. Yeah, they, they've sacrificed a lot. I mean, they're small. Um, they're not as strong or as powerful as the other big cats. Uh, they really do rely heavily on their speed, uh, as their hunting strategy. And they often have kills taken away from them because they're just not big enough to defend them. So as soon as they kill a prey, the first they just, they drag it under a tree to hide away so that they could eat it without being bothered. And it's not just speed, Steve. I think there was a recent news item saying, uh, saying that th- their maneuverability is also another key aspect. Of yeah. They, not they maintain just raw speed. They maintain their maneuverability even at their top hunting right. burst of speed. Absolutely. Let's go on to number three. Uh, a recent study using GPS-enabled tracking collars clocked cheetah hunting speeds at up to 58 miles per hour or 93 kilometers per hour. You all also think this one is science, and this one is also science. Yay. So, Hell yeah, that was that seems low, though. That it does low. seem low. Like 65. So Rebecca's right. Uh, uh, the most common reference you will find is to 70 miles per hour. People have claimed to have clocked cheetahs running at 70 miles per hour. But that's like, okay, it's about 300 yards from that tree to that tree and, you know, stopwatch it through. But <laughs> so you know, well, we could assume maybe that the GPS tracking collars were more accurate than the previous clocking methods. So at their fastest burst of speed when hunting, that the 58 miles per hour was the fastest any of the cheetahs were clocked. And it was a pretty that good stinks. sample. That, <laughs> that pisses me off, actually. Why? Because they're not as fast? It's just not as impressive. Well, Myth busted. Bob, this is how science works, though. I know, but they science could still run sometimes. you down and kill you. Very <laughs> I know. <laughs> they, they measured 367 predominantly hunting runs of five wild cheetahs. Oh, my God. So, so that's solid. That's solid then. 58 is like, that's it. They're yeah. not breaking 60. Ugh. That's not true. I mean, because it depends on their prey and how fast they have to go. They're not going to be like, okay, guys, this is for the record. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, but you would think after, after 300 runs. We're on the clock now. You'd get, you'd get a bunch over 60, you would think. But Maybe the collars, the collars slow them down. Weight them down, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Let's go back to number two. In fact, they could they could test this by rigging up something like what they do at Greyhound racing parks, you know, like a like a little bunny motorized rabbit. prey that yeah. they can drive at seventy miles an hour and see if any of the cheetahs can catch it. Yeah, and then you would true. see what their actual top speed is. Oh yeah. well, wait, what about a radar gun? I mean, I just assume that's what they probably would would have used. I mean, they're they're cheap enough. Yeah, but they're, they're inconsistent depending on which radar gun you use. Yeah. Yeah, and if there are several cheetahs running near each other, it could screw it up. Bob, you can't deny the GPS, man. All right, what are we doing here? I I know, I'm not. All right, number two. Cheetahs make several vocalizations, including a warning roar that is often mistaken for that of a lion, which they use to scare larger predators from their kills. Uh Everyone but Jay thinks this one is the fiction, and this one is the fiction. Yay. Oh, I'm back to 50%. <laughs> Good job, everyone. Good job, Evan. I'm retiring, batting yeah. a 1,000. Well yep. done, Randall. Randall, ah. 100%. Randall. Wait, that means I've pulled ahead of Jay. That's that, the most that, important thing that that's does, happened just that now. Does mean oh. that. So, yeah, but cheetahs do make several different vocalizations, but uh, they are the one big cat that does not roar. They absolutely do not roar. Uh, they do make chirping noises, purring, uh, and a variety, several other noises. And other big cats can't purr. They can only roar. Mm-hmm. Oh, cat yeah. facts. 
Which brings us to number four. The name cheetah comes from the Indian word meaning spotted one, and that one, of course, is science. Uh, of course, the word, there is no literal translation for the word, so if you look up the etymology of cheetah, you'll get variations on spotted one. One reference I read just said spots or distinctively marked, many colored, variegated, you know, spotted, speckled, you know, whatever. You have to translate it somehow, but it basically means spotted one. Uh, the word cheetah, C-H-I-T-A. I was totally okay with this as a theme. <laughs> let's, let's stick she- to animals Rebecca loved when she was 10. <laughs> I'll take animals Rebecca likes for 1,000. <laughs> so, Jay, why did you GWR, man? Are you an anti-type? <laughs> 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 you got to understand something. You're a For the first time, that someone could appropriately say, I'm going to GWJ. I wasn't going to no. like... I had a, I'm, never the, I'm in the lead, you know. I, I had a, I had to live that role for the brief moment that it lasted. Is that what just happened? Success went to your head and you immediately lost. Yes. So you, you're basically <laughs> saying that you choked, Jay. Are yeah. you surprised, I, Rebecca? I brazenly picked number four, where everyone else dared to tread. I went there. Yeah, he choked. All right, but good, job, good job, Randall, on your first. And you, and you went, you, you headed the lineup. You had no, uh, yeah. no help on this one. Good job. Thank All right, you. Jay, but you get your your weekly consolation prize of getting to read the quote. A listener named Stuart Kurgian from New Jersey sent in a quote. <laughs> He said, this quote is from Arthur Ed- Eddington. Anybody know who Arthur Eddington is? Is that from True Blood? No, Eddington <laughs> was the uh, astro- astronomer. <laughs> That's who, Eddington. Uh, Eddington. You're right, Evan. Evan. The, the eclipse. You got he it. photographed the eclipse that Einstein used to uh, verify the, uh, his uh, theory of relativity. Uh, his theories. Exactly. Yes, theory of Good job, Evan. He was a professor of Thank astronomy you. at the University of Cambridge. He was arguably the most important astrophysicist of the early 20th century. Friend of uh, of uh, Einstein, and I have a quote that um, that Stewart sent in, and it's from the HBO special about Einstein and Arthur Eddington. And we're not a hundred percent sure if where the quote comes from, but I searched and I searched online, and I you know I'm only finding this one source. But if anyone has a correction, uh, send it in. But it's a great quote, so that's why I decided to use it. The pursuit of truth in science transcends national boundaries. It takes us beyond hatred and anger and fear. It is the best of us. Arthur Eddington! So this is our last show before we will be at the amazing meeting. We'll be at TAM 2013 next week, July 11th through 14th. There are two SGU events I want to remind our listeners about who are going to uh, going to TAM. You have to sign up for it separately. The SGU dinner is Friday night. We'll have several hours to just sit and chat with our listeners, and we're going to be doing an auction during the SGU dinner, including auctioning off a coveted guest rogue spot, and we're going to also be doing a skeptical quiz show uh, with the uh, our listeners playing, and the winner, the winner of the quiz show will get a free VIP access to TAM 2014, and that's a $1,000 value. We also have Saturday night, the SGU Poker Tournament. There are still a few seats left for that, so sign up. You can sign up for these two events through the website, or you could sign up for them at the event. So when you arrive at TAM and you register, just uh, sign up for the SGU Dinner or the SGU Poker Tournament at that time. All right, guys. Well, uh, Randall, thanks for joining us this week. We had a lot of fun with you this week on the show. Thanks, man. 
It's been a pleasure, and uh, I checked something off my bucket list. Thank you very much. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Randall. Right. Have a good day in peace. Thank you. And thanks to the rest of you for joining me again this week. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Do- You're Doctor. welcome. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. That's Harry Potter, it is. Harry Potter? Harry Potter?